It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom. Nope, and bloom. That's right. There's always a little bloom in every hour of doom. That's right. I always say. <laughs> and with that, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a station of serenity in a seditious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find, gosh, 1,200 articles, podcasts, videos, and, I don't know, random comments <laughs> on medical preparedness. That's right. And I am Nurse Amy. Actually, I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. Here to be coddled and, I don't know, cuddled and just just snuggled, held, snuggled and held <laughs> what are you trying to warmly say, and calmly and tranquilly in our arms. Forget it. We're going to give you the... What for? The what for. <laughs> Gosh darn it. And we are indeed the kind of folks that are willing to do that. We do have active medical licenses. You're not just talking to anybody. You're talking to actual medical professionals. But you know what? That doesn't mean that we don't go outside. Uh, not outside the house, although we're not supposed to in some places. We literally don't <laughs> go outside the house, but sadly. <laughs> we're talking about going outside the conventional medical wisdom. We do do that. Sometimes we're not just outside, but not even in the same orbit around the same planet as the conventional medical wisdom. Now, that's what it might take to be medically self-reliant. But you know what? Before we start, you better listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care wherever and whenever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to us. We're just the cry of a loon on a lonely lake in upper ontario or somewhere where are the loons i don't think we have loons down here in florida no you're the loon <laughs> maybe a faint little and that voice. makes me mrs loon there you go that's right you know that uh, the dollar canadian dollar i think is called the loony the coin is oh that's hilarious and uh, i think if it's a two dollar coin canadian dollar coin i think it's called the toonie a toonie yeah a loony toonie i've heard that i could be right i could be wrong so is that where they got looney tunes <laughs> maybe all right maybe. well uh, that's a story to be researched well guys out there if we didn't have enough reason for us to keep to our houses to avoid COVID 19 well now we have rioting in dozens of major cities throughout the United States. It makes you want to live in the country, that's for sure. Yes. But unfortunately, our kids don't live anywhere near the country. They live in major cities. We have a daughter in Brooklyn. Ugh. We have a daughter in Chicago. Uh, sons <sighs> in... I don't know how I ended up with that. Well... You have a son who's moving to Chicago in that's 10 right. days. That's right. He's also moving to Chicago. I have another one down here in <sighs> the metroplex of uh, Fort Lauderdale and Miami and that area and i'll tell you this is where the trouble is so it would be better to be somewhere up on the top of a mountain in gatlinburg which uh, well, ordinarily would we would be right now but that's not in the cards for this year what can i tell you maybe fall maybe fall maybe everything will be straightened out by then i hope so i should be allowed to 
leave our house. Right. We're supposed to. We're... <laughs> Not have curfews and be banned from second homes. <laughs> Please, world, get back to normal. <laughs> it is a mess. But I do want to talk to people a little bit about what's going on. You know, protests are still going on, as at least as of the time of this recording, and maybe a little less violent, I hope. Uh, but we've seen that it just takes one event to set the entire country afire. And you need to know how to protect yourself in these kinds of situations That's if true. you wind up being caught in the middle of one You're of these things. You're absolutely right. Safety first. Here's some of my thoughts with regards to how to keep safe in an area of civil unrest. As a free speech advocate, I support the people's right to protest and make their opinions heard. Unfortunately, demonstrations in the U.S. these days are becoming more frequent and violent. After a short break due to the pandemic, people are again out in the streets, some with legitimate concerns and others with bad intentions. I've spoken about this before, but it hit home recently when the pharmacy on the bottom floor where my daughter lives was broken into and looted. This is in the city of Chicago. Luckily, no fires were set. She has a golden retriever, though, and dogs need to be walked. Hence, I worry, how can she stay safe in such an environment? I haven't been to a protest since the Vietnam era, and in that I was inadvertently caught in a wave of people escaping a barrage of pepper gas just on the way to class. Back then, I was fit enough to hightail it out of there. Today, well, I don't know, not so much. There's so much civil unrest in the news these days that any major city can become a tinderbox. Therefore, it's a good idea to have a riot survival strategy, whether you plan to be there or just a bystander. It goes without saying that your objective should be to stay away from where the violence is occurring. Rule number one, if you walk smack dab into a demonstration, things can get dicey pretty fast. Therefore, when it comes to going to areas of civil unrest, ask yourself the question, is this trip necessary? I've written a lot about situational preparedness, and that mindset will serve you very well. A situationally prepared person should always be in a state of yellow alert. Yellow alert simply means being calmly and vigilantly aware of your surroundings and the people around you. When a person or group of people behave strangely, take note and avoid them. Large groups tend to exhibit what we call herd behavior. They tend to do what other people around them are doing. This is because those who join the group in the behavior figure, well, if several other people are doing something, it must be worthwhile or they wouldn't be doing it. I mentioned in my active shooter videos that if 50 people around you drop to the ground at the sound of a gunshot, you're probably going to do about the same thing without even thinking, even though it's probably better to run in the opposite direction from the sound. There are aspects of behavior in civil unrest that change the rules of polite society. The greater anonymity that exists within a group makes a person believe that they can act a certain way and not have the same consequences than if they were acting alone. For example, if someone in a large group is looting a store, they might believe there's less chance of getting caught, and they might feel less personal responsibility about their action. Always mentally map out routes of escape as you walk along. Where's the nearest side street? Is there a building or subway entrance that will take you out of harm's way? If you don't know the area, move away to where you do know the lay of the land. If you have to make your way through a crowd, make sure you stay on the fringes. Don't get caught in the middle of masses of people surging away or towards the violence. If you do, they're deciding your movements, not you. Don't underestimate the state of confusion or even panic that can exist in a large group. Say a crowd of people incite law enforcement to use tear gas. When the crowds run to escape the gas cloud, they could run right into you. In extreme cases, some folks could even get trampled by large numbers of folks that are trying to move quickly in the same direction. 
Having said that, unless everyone else is rushing in your direction, don't run yourself unless you have no choice. If you're the only person moving in high gear in a crowd, you will attract unwanted attention. That doesn't mean you should mosey out of there, walk fast and purposefully around a corner or to a safe spot. Avoid being caught against walls, fences, blockades, and other solid objects if you can. You could get crushed by masses of protesters. And by the way, avoid confrontations with these people. Don't engage in political discussions, and it's probably not a good idea to wear your convictions on your t-shirt or your hat. In the wrong place and the wrong time, this can get you attacked, pepper sprayed, beaten, or even killed. It's a sad statement on today's society, but it's true. It pays to be inconspicuous. This may be difficult if you're six foot eight inches tall, but otherwise, well, do your best to be what we call the gray man. You should also have a bandana handy. This is a classic survival supply, not a gas mask per se, but most people have a face covering in these pandemic times, so might as well use it. It's better than nothing at riots where tear gas is sprayed. Now, some advocate soaking the cloth with lemon juice or apple cider vinegar to counteract tear gas, but I'm not sure. I think that this may just be an urban myth. Wear sneakers or other footwear that will allow you the most mobility. The only women wearing high heels are going to be reporters. Foolhardy reporters at that. Make sure you're well clothed so that your skin is protected. If you're going to need to wash clothes thoroughly that might have been exposed to tear gas or other chemicals, or you might have to throw them away. Be aware of the movement of law enforcement officers, but do not approach them. Their job is tough enough, and they may be dealing with a hostile confrontation at the moment. Besides, they're not going to be able to hear you probably above the roar of the crowd. If you're with friends, stay together. If you can't, agree on a meeting place beforehand in case you wind up getting separated moving through the crowd. In areas where civil unrest is rife, carry some cold water, milk, or diluted liquid antacid like Maalox, or even baking soda solution, which is, by the way, recommended by the people who make mace, if you're sprayed with tear gas. You want to move quickly into an area of fresh air and pour the liquid on your face, especially your eyes. Drink it if you were sprayed in the mouth. Milk or liquid antacid are thought by some to work better than water, but there's no hard data one way or another on this. Baking soda solution, by the way, should not be taken with a full stomach. The good news is that even if you do little or nothing, the effects of tear gas will resolve over time. If you're involved in a protest or traveling through any area experiencing violence, you should carry a basic medical kit that will help to treat injuries and stop bleeding. I know where you can get one. I used to say that it's likely you're never going to get caught in a civil unrest event, but you know what? I'm no longer so sure. Having a solid plan of action in these troubled times just makes common sense. You should prepare for man-made disasters just as you should for hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes. Well, with all the violence that we've seen out there, I'm sure there are quite a few people, I'll bet a lot of law enforcement officers, that wound up getting hit by a brick or other projectile and needed stitches. Lacerations of the skin, these are things that can occur off the grid in scenarios uh, that are related to survival as well. But there's no hospital there that's ready to close the wound. So it's up to the family medic to figure out what to do. That person needs to have a working knowledge of not just how to throw a stitch, but when a wound should stay open, when a wound should be closed, because of, let's say, risks of infection. A lot of wounds in outdoor situations are going to be dirty, and so you may really have to work through a few factors before you decide to close a wound. We've discussed this topic on this program before, actually a number of times, to sew or not to sew, to stitch or not to stitch, but 
you have to know if you're going to do that, if you're actually going to close a wound and you have learned the rudimentaries of what you need to do to close a wound, what type of suture materials are going to be best for the purpose? There are a lot of animals that are, well, not the type that really need much stitching. They have an exoskeleton as a protective covering. So this includes things like insects and spiders and shrimps and crabs, things like that. Humans, however, we have our skeletons on the inside, so we depend on the largest organ of the body, that's our skin, instead. Skin represents an armor that protects the body and the skeleton from invasion by debris and microbes. But a breach in that armor increases the chance of infection that could spread throughout the entire body. We call that sepsis, and it can become life-threatening. So as such, there are circumstances where a break in the skin should be closed with materials known as sutures, things that we've talked about before. The decision to close, not automatic, remember that. Very, very important to know some important factors as to when you close and when you don't close. We'll talk about that in future shows. We've talked about it in previous shows. You can certainly look them up in archives. Uh, but once that decision is made, the correct choice of suture material really impacts the strength and effectiveness of the healing process. Now, if you had a perfect suture, if you had an optimal suture, it would be sterile. It would be easy to use. It would be strong enough to hold the wound edges together. It would be able to retain strength for whatever time was needed for the wound to heal. It would be unlikely to cause infection or tissue reaction or significant scarring, and it would be reliable in its everyday use for every type of wound. Now, pretty much all of you out there know that I've done quite a lot of suturing in my day yeah. over decades of... <laughs> Thousands and thousands and thousands and surgical, thousands. Surgical <laughs> procedures and things like that. But what they might not know is that you have a great deal of experience suturing as well, don't you? I do, absolutely. And tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, unfortunately, when a woman has a baby, there is usually some, sometimes not so much, but some and occasionally a lot of damage in the vaginal area. And it's not a great place to have to suture because um, it's kind of like suturing in a dark, unlit place. <laughs> right. And you have to do it by feel. You have to know the feel of the muscle and the tissues and be able to bring them together and sew in uh, several layers and know which suture is going to hold, which one you need to use here and there and get it all back together hopefully exactly the way it was before. And certainly the vaginal lining is not as tough as normal skin. No, no, it's very tough. And what happens, unfortunately, when the muscles tear is they retract. And so you have to find them and bring them back together. So it's like trying to sew a snapped rubber band. You have to pull both sides together. And that's basically the consistency of it. And I'll tell you, it's true that some lacerations can go all the way through oh, the anal sphincter, yes. too. I wasn't going to mention that. That's why I said <laughs> quite deep instead of right. your, your descriptive right. But the interesting thing is that that muscle is almost sort of circular. Yes. You know, and if that's not to put together, if it's torn apart it with a delivery and not put together, away, yep. it is actually going to prevent the control of bowel movements. Yes. And so... Well, you are being rather graphic I am, today. I am. That's sort of a surgical Should thing. Should have had a warning for this. Yes. I mentioned this because there are all sorts of different uh, 
skin, all sorts of different organs, all sorts of different mucosal membranes that may need to be sutured. I mean, dentists sometimes have to suture tears in, in the cheek or in the gum areas. Sometimes bleeding after removal of a tooth mm -hmm. will require stitching the gum together. So there are quite a few things that stitches are used for, and it's important to know that there are different types. Now, about a hundred years ago, what we were using to suture with was mostly things like gut. And when I say gut, I'm talking about, uh, some people call it cat gut, but it was never really made from cat's guts. It was made from the intestinal lining of sheep and cows. So how did it end up being called cat? Cat Do gut. And I don't, idea? I have Isn't no idea. I have no idea. Why wouldn't it have been ga uh, cow gut? Cow gut. Yeah, they should have it's called it cow It's not like it was, cow is a longer word than cat. Right. <laughs> it's true. It It's unusual, but that's some of the cool things about history is that you just don't know why there certain There is an are. answer out there somewhere. If you guys know the answer to that, feel free to send us an email at drbonespodcast <laughs> at aol.com. Of course, but, I'm going to look it up right this second also. <laughs> now, 100 years, 100 years ago, we didn't have a suture and a thread as a one-unit kind of item. They were You had your suture needle and you had your string. Oh, wait, do you have the result? I do. Of that cat gut inquiry? Yes, Google. Why is cat gut called cat gut? Although the name implies the usage of guts of cats, <laughs> like you said, there is no record of feline guts being used for this purpose. Again, like you said... The genius, Dr. Alton. The word cat, <laughs> the word cat gut is derived from the term kit gut or kit string. The string used on a fiddle, oh. which is also called a kit. Oh, a fiddle. Oh, okay. Misinterpretation of the word kit as referring to a young cat led to the use of the term cat gut. Oh my gosh. Well, how about <laughs> it was that? Just a confusion, so, which is how a lot of things come into play. So they should have called it kitten gut. No, <laughs> no, no, no. They should have called it cow gut. <laughs> That's right. Exactly what it was. Well, anyhow, suture string and a needle. These were two separate items about a hundred years ago and you threaded the needle and what would happen is you would as it goes through the skin, you have two different threads that are going through the skin at the same time. This causes an increased chance of infection, and they wanted to decrease the chance of infection with suturing. And so what they did is they hollowed out the knee, the end of the, uh, not the pointy end, the other end of the suture needle. The blunt end. Right. They stuck the string in, and then they crimped the end. And voila, you have a one unit string and needle combination. That is called swaging. And since swaging occurred, well, since the 30s, I guess that's pretty much how you're doing it. Now the classification of sutures themselves by type of material and size of the thread, that occurred around the same time as well. Suture diameters are most commonly used in, uh, that are most commonly used in humans are measured in zeros, much like buckshot. Uh, just like you might know that double-aught buckshot is bigger than triple-aught buckshot, 2-0 suture, it's not called double-aught, but it's called 2-0 suture, is thicker than 3-0 suture. The more zeros, the finer the thread. If you have a lot of zeros behind your thread, then you probably can suture two bacteria together. Right. Good so, luck with that, though. <laughs> there you go. 
Finer sutures have less tissue reaction, they heal faster, but they're more difficult to handle in people without ex a lot of experience. And that's why when we teach classes, we use relatively thick material, 2030, right. that's relatively thick material. We probably would use something lesser depending, but it depends entirely on the type of tissue mm -hmm. that we're talking about. In addition to size, sutures are classified as absorbable or non-absorbable. An absorbable suture is one that's going to break down spontaneously over time, but not before the tissue has healed. Absorbable sutures are good in that they have the advantage of not requiring removal after healing has taken place. Dissolvable sutures are treated by the body as foreign objects, and so the immune system of the body generates an inflammatory response that removes this perceived invasion, and that causes the sutures to absorb or eventually go away. And absorbable sutures take advantage of the body's tendency to eliminate foreign materials. Now, because dissolvable sutures may create more scarring than non-dissolvable sutures because of reaction, the reaction of the body uh, in, and inflammation, they're most often used internally rather than externally, although I've seen people use them externally as well. And that's because they get absorbed. Now, since these sutures are made from multiple fibers. They remain extremely strong in the first few days of healing. But the good news is that things like gut, either plain or chromic, I'll talk about that in a second, are gone in two to four weeks. And some of the synthetic absorbables are, take several months to go away completely, but they are also something that will indeed go away completely. The difference between plain cat gut and chromic cat gut is that they dip the gut into a chromic solution and this causes it to be a little more long-lasting than just plain gut. So quickly just a few types of absorbable sutures. Uh, gut we mentioned, it's used for repairing internal soft tissue wounds or lacerations. Um, gut shouldn't be used for cardiovascular or neurological procedures but you will not be doing those in your role as medic. You will be doing much simpler stuff. Uh, the body has the strongest reaction to this suture, by the way, and this suture will often scar over. So not used much on skin, used, uh, let's say, after a delivery of a baby, used in dental procedures, things like that. But in general, this is an old suture, probably has been supplanted by a lot of other more modern synthetic absorbable sutures. One of them is PDS. I mentioned that a second ago. And this is a synthetic sort of monofilament line type of suture and can be used for many types of soft tissue wound repair, such as an abdominal closure. Another is called monocryl, M-O-N-O-C-R-Y-L, and that's also popular. Vicryl, V-I-C-R-Y-L, and Dexon, D-E-X-O-N, all these are very, very popular synthetic absorbables that have been around for a long time. Many of these sutures now have sort of new versions of them, some of which absorb more rapidly, some of them absorb less rapidly or stronger or, or weaker, depending on what the needs are. And you don't really need to go through all those. The, they're going to be difficult to get anyhow. You can find some very basic ones like Vicryl, you can find PDS, you can find Chromix, of course, and you can find Silk. Now, let's talk a little bit about the non-absorbable sutures. The absorbable sutures, we talked a little bit about how long they last. Now, the time to about a 50% breaking strength for these sutures can last between just five days for the latest rapid sutures that are, not, that are absorbable, 
all the way to three to four weeks to the classic chromic gut. Now that's their 50% breaking strength, but believe it or not, even though these things are absorbable, they will last much longer. For example, uh, chromic gut will last in the body. You'll find evidence of it in the body for about 90 days, monocryl 90 to 120, Vicarol 56 to 70. So these things will be there for a while, but they will eventually go away. But there are many sutures that will not go away. And in reality, a, a, the survival medic is probably going to be using those more often. Non-absorbable sutures are best used in skin closures, situations that require a prolonged tensile strength to them. And they include the fishing line like monofilaments like nylon and proline, braided multifilaments like surgical silk, and there are a number of other different ones. Ethabond is one. Mersaline is something that uh, we used in obstetrics to close a dilating cervix in women who were very premature, too premature for their fetus to survive, but who were not in labor. Some women have what we call incompetent cervixes. The cervix cannot stay closed long enough, and they lose multiple pregnancies when they hit about five, six months. And the mersaline, you put it in a, in a horseshoe fashion uh, around the cervix, tie it shut, and it actually gave a lot of these women the opportunity to have more time and get their baby to the point where it can survive. Well, so that's great, but basically what we're talking about is things that you would use as a survival medic. For the most part, you're going to use monofilaments like nylon, very useful because they have... Uh, a very small likelihood of harboring any bacteria. Some braided multifilaments like silk do have little nooks and crannies for these organisms to hide, and they're a couple of percent higher infection rate with them, but a lot of people feel that it's easier to tie knots with them. Um, the monofilament lines like nylon seem to glide more easily through tissue. So what do I use when I teach people? I, when I teach you, I usually use braided silk because I'm not worried about it's a pig's foot, uh, and so I'm not worried about infection, but I am worried about the ability of people to gain confidence in tying knots. And so I use braided silk more often than nylon, but the truth is, is that some people prefer nylon and some people teach with nylon only, so go figure. I say that you should use probably 2.0 and 3.0. If you're going to be accumulating some supplies, accumulate 2.0 and 3.0. These are really thick sutures, too thick for many surgeons, but they're useful for the off-grid medic who does not tie surgical knots on a regular basis, does not do suturing on a regular basis. And I hope even in a survival situation, you would not have to, but they're easier to learn with. You don't have to have a microscopic lens to be able to see these things. So those are some of the choices that are available in non-absorbables. These are the kind that you'll want to have in place. Uh, they'll be in place forever. Now, is there a danger to leaving them in place? Well, the body does have a foreign body reaction. And what that means is that it's going to wall off each of these sutures. And so you'll probably feel under the skin. If you feel under the skin, if you had used some non-absorbable suture in a deep layer, let's say muscle things, like you might feel sort of like a little string of beads. Those are granulomas, which are basically the walled off remains of the suture and the body's reaction to it. Now, does it do anything bad to you? For the most part, it just doesn't. Matter of fact, even years later, some of these sutures may actually work their way out through the skin. But 
you might consider using something that's going to be completely absorbable and there are a lot of materials that are just like that. In reality, the size and the type of suture you're going to use is going to depend on the area of the body being repaired. And so slowly healing tissues such as skin and tendons, they require sutures that are going to last a longer time. On the skin, you probably would want uh, non-absorbable sutures and you probably would want to uh, remove them with uh, suture scissors probably, I would say, 7 to 10 days uh, on most skin over joints, I would say 14 days or so, depending on how the healing process is going. Maybe a shorter period of time if the laceration that's being closed is on the face. I think that makes the longer they're in, the more likely that there'll be some scarring. Of course, in survival settings, cosmetic results are less important, but you're going to want to use, in most circumstances, the smallest suture that's going to be able to do the job and to last long enough to give the area as much healing as possible. So the type of needle, that's an important thing as well. Uh, it's not just the suture, it's not just the string, but it's the type of needle. Some needles are round. If you cut them on cross-section, these are called tapered or atraumatic needles, and they're best used for sensitive structures like the lining of the bowel, other deep structures, maybe a vaginal laceration or a, a cheek laceration, things like that. Um, the skin, which is much tougher, would need a needle that is usually triangular-shaped. If you cut it on cross-section, these are called... Uh, cutting needles, and these are best used on tough materials, like especially skin, is what it's most commonly used for. And they use the uh, sharp edges of the triangle, I guess the points of the triangle, if you see this thing cut on cross-section, it's a triangle, and this allows the needle to go more easily through tough tissue-like skin. Now, in the end, the choice of suture needles and material is just going to vary depending on the user. Each surgeon is going to have his own preferences or her own preferences, and it's based on their experience. Remember the act of suturing or stapling a wound. By the way, stapling is something that we're going to talk about in future shows. Uh, it's more traumatic than using things like butterfly closures or stereostrips or surgical glues. Uh, due to the fact that you're making more punctures in an area that, of skin that's already injured, right? You're putting holes in as you're passing the needle through extra holes, and each extra hole that you create could allow the entry of bacteria into the wound. So you have to do your very, very best to just use the amount of sutures that you actually need. Remember, you're going to have a limited amount of this stuff. If you're the person doing the suturing, then obviously there's not a modern medical system around and they're probably not manufacturing new sutures and so therefore what you got is what's got to last and so you have to do everything you can to only use them when absolutely necessary i'm going to be doing a video on this in the near future and i hope you'll hope you'll take a look at it it's going to be on dr bones nurse amy's youtube channel well that's all i've got for today i want to thank everybody for listening to the survival medicine podcast we'll be back next time You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. 
Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.